I mean, the continuity of everything is sort of like, it's part of the realist mantra. I mean, in the US, all of the people who identify as realists are always on about the continuity of foreign policy. Interests are fixed, national interests are fixed. They derive from something, some kind of nationness. Yes. And so what you need is you need to have this foreign service staffed by people who are good at identifying the national interest. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Today we have a special guest to our normal Matt and Tom. John Gleb has graced us with his presence again, and we're talking about his specialty, which is diplomacy, and how that interacts with the sort of Wilsonian liberal democratic order. So I hope you enjoy. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me back on the you show. Were a, it's great to be here. You were a treat last time, so Thank we're hoping to continue much. our conversation. Foreign service, diplomacy, uh, with, I think, a little more American focus, though knowing our preferences will probably go all over the place. So let's tee you up. So we were hoping to get into sort of the discussion of the realist beginnings of American foreign policy following World War II into the Cold War. Why don't you set the scene of the American Foreign Service before that period and just sort of what continuity we can see going to, you know, the mid-1940s? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. Um, I think it sort of falls within the scope of common knowledge, um, at least for people who are interested in topics related to American foreign policy, that um, the liberal international school, so to speak, um, emerges with uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, who obviously uh, was politically active and represents a point of continuity with this period um, before, long before the Second World War, long before even, before even the, the First World War to a certain extent. Um, but what I have been interested to discover lately is that the paradigm that is often set up is the opposite, the antithesis of liberal internationalism, the realist foreign policy paradigm, seems to have also emerged. Um, its roots lie in that same period. They may even precede slightly Wilson uh, and Wilsonism. Um, the ideas about the importance of fixed national interests, which are one of the guiding tenets of the realist paradigm, I think, um, emerge, I've been discovering, during the period around 1898, around the time at which the United States becomes sort of formally a world power and formally an empire. Uh, a school of thought begins to develop within the State Department that there are, there exists this set of fixed American national interests. Um, and because interests are fixed, that means that foreign policy itself has to be fixed. Um, and if foreign policy is fixed, uh, obviously this raises questions about the extent to which the natural oscillations of democratic politics are compatible with the pursuit of foreign policy. Uh, and this starts all sorts of interesting conversations about the role of the Foreign Service and the character of Foreign Service officers. They need to be professionals. Do they also need to be Americans of a particular sort? Do they need to have a particular political outlook? And what is their relationship going to look like with elected officials? Interesting. Wow, <laughs> that's quite a summary. So do you think there's sort of 
an intractability with Wilsonianism and this realist worldview that started to develop? Or do you think that kind of like this liberal, it's really, I mean, the stage to globalism in a lot of ways, do you think that is at odds with each other or that you think it can kind of fit into a realist worldview? Um, well, what I would say, I think, is that the realists and the liberal internationalists, and these are, again, very blanket terms, I should point out. Um, so obviously they're going to be people who fall somewhere on the spectrum, like between the perfect ideal liberal internationalist and the perfect ideal, uh, the platonic form of the realist. Um, but I think basically we're talking about people who are seeing the same problem uh, and trying to answer it in two different ways. So the problem is that the United States is emerging as a global power with colonies, with an empire, with commercial interests that expand well beyond even those, those sort of colonial frontiers. Um, the United States is entering the world, and the world is, as you said correctly, globalizing. Um, what do you do about that? How do American institutions need to adapt to that? And how does, alternatively, how does the world need to adapt to the United States? How does the United States need to carve out its place in the world or make the world, so to speak? Um, and the realists, to a certain extent, see the question as a question about how do we make the United States into a relatively traditional great power that can play the traditional great power game. Um, of course, still preserving this idea that there exists a particular set of American interests. Some of them, um, even assuming that the promotion of democracy or the promotion of liberal values or American values is one of those interests that the United States needs to pursue. But still, the answer that they um, pose to the question, what do we do in the world, is basically, we need to be able to play the great power game. We need to develop state institutions that will allow us to compete with states like Britain and Germany and France and Russia, Russia, of course, becomes particularly important later on. We need to do things that allow us to remain strong and to counterpose ourselves against these other powers. Um, the liberal internationalist question, which is actually, I think, particularly interesting and particularly radical, the liberal internationalist answer, that is, I'm sorry, um, kind of does the opposite. It looks at American domestic society and, say, and assumes that this is the best kind of social order that can exist in the world. And what they want to do is to ensure that that social order is preserved. They don't want to change the character of American institutions in really fundamental ways. They don't want to change the way Americans look at the world. What they want to do is make the world safe for American institutions, as Wilson famously says, to make the world safe for democracy. So what they want to do is to change the world around the United States. Um, and this involves setting up lots of international institutions to kind of cushion and buffer the United States, but also to kind of make sure that everyone is playing by the rules that are acceptable to the United States. So that's a more radical and interventionist answer um, in many ways than the realist answer. Uh, and that's that bifurcation, which really occurs as early as 1900, 1910, even before the First World War, um, becomes really crucial, I think, later on in the century. Wow. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting. And I think you set the stage perfectly for 
for us to talk to kind of talk about these two schools of foreign policy. For me, it's interesting to think about how once there's this bifurcation and people are thinking about this, talking about this, I mean, this is going on on the political level. Yeah. It's going on at the State Department level among diplomats, yeah. these debates. And then it's also going on in like academia and, and writing and journals and stuff like that. Yeah. But if we go to the first of those kind of three categories, there becomes this idea of the, of the, the foreign policy consensus. Right, and particularly during the Cold War, it's like the only place where you know, the, the parties can still agree on things. Is this idea that it's in uh, foreign policy? When yeah. did that really start? Is that a, a, a very distinct Cold War thing, or was this even coming around before World War II? It is definitely not a distinct Cold War phenomenon. Okay. It is um, that idea certainly is has emerged. I don't want to say is emerging, but it it has emerged already by, in the United States, by about 1910. Okay, well, um, and what's fascinating about that is that how can there be a consensus? Does that mean all of the, the congressmen are either realists or liberal internationalists? How can, if there's these two sets of ideas out there now, then how can there still be a consensus? Aha, uh -huh. well, you see, this is, <laughs> this is what becomes interesting. It's um, the idea about a consensus, I think emerges in a particularly acutely articulated form within the realist camp. Um, it's not that there is a consensus, it's that there needs to be a consensus because national interests are fixed. National interests do not, you know, the national interest, this is the assumption. I'm, I'm summarizing the view at this point. National interests are the same if you're a Democrat or a Republican, if you're a liberal or a conservative. Uh, your particular um, point of view on domestic politics, on a particular social issue or a political issue that applies within the United States, um, has nothing to do with um, the way in which you ought to see national interests, because these national interests are like they're real things out in the world that we need to be pursuing. And this is where the State Department begins to really sort of carve out an independent role for itself. Uh, the thinkers in the State Department, many of whom uh, are kind of proto-realists, I would say, uh, begin to begin to argue that it is important for people in Congress, Democrats and Republicans, no matter who you are, you need to listen to us because we are the experts. We are the ones who know what the fixed national interests are, who know where the path is supposed to be leading us. The Democrats might want to, you know, shift to the left, or the Republicans might want to shift to the right. But we, we're the ones who know that the real path runs straight. So you need to sort of defer to our judgment, um, whatever your politically informed judgments, um, whatever those may be. Uh, so that's, it's not that there is a consensus, it's that a certain group of people wants to bring about a consensus. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating, and and you know we can debate, you know, what was America's foreign policy during the Cold War, realist or liberal internationalist. But I think that uh, if we jump to today, something that's really interesting to me is just how Donald Trump was kind of characterized as this person of, you know, America first. It was framed as a more re a kind of a return to a more, a more realist ideal. Mm -hmm like that and the idea was that that i think that at some point the cold war we were pursuing a realist we had such clear national or you know state interests um this more realist idea but then some at some point after the fall of the soviet union 
um, we became too liberal internationalist, and and now only some, and that became the the State Department at some point switched from being the arbiters of this very realist notion of no, no, no we know what the the. The, our realist national interests are, and at some point, the, the State Department became this liberal internationalist institution. And now Trump is the one who has to return us to a more real foreign policy realist ground. Did, did that make any sense? What I just said? No, no, I understand the point of view. I think, I think that that accurately describes the thinking of some people who are around Donald Trump and within yes. the kind of present conservative camp. Especially, I think it describes it describes some of the people who deliberately pose themselves as enemies of old-fashioned neoconservatives in a certain way. Right. Um, because neoconservatism is, to a certain extent, an outgrowth of liberal internationalism. It's right. related to liberal internationalism. Right. Um, and there are a lot of people who are critical of that kind of that kind of that particular interventionist mantra which is perceived to have an ideologically tinged valence a morally tinged valence to it yeah so let's let's uh let's move a little bit back so you pick 1910 it's yeah. this date where this consensus became um, a more important thing that they had to adhere to. Is that in a post-Spanish American war mindset? Is that the idea of just, we have the Philippines, we are dealing with Cuba, we have this newfound land, we need to deal with it in a single-minded way? Yep. Or is that sort of um, reacting to the world becoming more globalized? The more intertwined markets with Europe, like the development of you know a global economic system. Is there larger factors at work or is it just the idea that we're kind of an empire, guys. We need to get our shit together. Um, that's a complicated question to answer. Um, and so the answer will necessarily <laughs> be somewhat complex, but I will try to make it as simply as possible, I think. So um, the research that I've been doing lately makes me think that there are sort of three factors at play in the crystallization of that proto, let's call it proto-realist worldview, since it's not really like high realism. It's not, sure. these people are not Henry Kissinger, mm -hmm. but um, it's it's trending in that direction. And it's trending in that direction for, th for three reasons. Uh, the first reason, which is the one which a lot of people who wrote sort of classical, the classical interpretation, which emerged from a lot of the literature in the 60s and 70s, I think, um, is that um, a lot of this has to do with the Panic of 1893 and the economic problems that the United States is experiencing at this time when the international economic system is becoming sort of more obviously international and more obviously global. One of the problems which policymakers perceive um, as having caused the Panic of 1893, the economic collapse of 1893, um, which was quite bad for the American economy, um, was that at home there isn't enough demand for all of the stuff we're producing. And so what you need to do is you need to go overseas and find new markets for goods that are being made in the United States or for products, for agricultural products too. Um, the problem with that, this is a problem within a problem now, is that one would think that if, if, the problem were, if this problem of overproduction, as it's often called, were acute enough, the manufacturers themselves would start to look for overseas markets. They would be going out 
and that's looking. Logical, yeah. yeah, that's logical. Yes. So if you can't sell your goods at home, you sell your goods to someone else overseas, and you 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 know you do the kind of capital investment basically. Find that's demand. necessary to do that. Yeah, exactly. The the problem is that as the proto-realists perceive it, that sort of critical mass of not enough of a market at home, that hasn't occurred yet, and they get quite angry. They're often quite frustrated at domestic manufacturers, at American businessmen. They're not doing what they need to do to, to sort of lock down the overseas markets. They're not going out and, and setting up the infrastructure they need to set up overseas. And as a result, they're sort of losing out. They're perceived to be losing out to their competitors in Europe who are more perceived to be, believed to be better at going out and, and securing these overseas markets. So this is where uh, the State Department and specifically the Consular Service, which deals with um, the promotion of overseas commerce, feels the need to intercede. Um, they intercede, one, by sort of trying to lock down the markets ahead of time so that once the seriousness of overproduction at home becomes so acute. Once the market really dries up, there are markets already locked down for Americans to use overseas. Um, and the second thing they do is they turn to the businessmen and they kind of wrap their knuckles. Hey, you guys need to be going out and using our services. We've, we've done all this stuff, which is designed to help you. You need to help us do it and you need to take advantage of it. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing that begins to happen is, uh, which is related to the first, um, if you're going out and promoting foreign commerce, then naturally you're going to start to run up against other people from other countries doing that. It becomes political. Very it quickly. becomes political, yes. So you need to, you need to, um, I think it's Elihu Root who says something, and he was the Secretary of State under Theodore Roosevelt. Um, one of the, also significantly one of the people who was um, involved in a big way in State Department professionalization and reform, um, justifying this by saying something like, if you have a foreign trade of some millions of dollars, you need to have a foreign policy mechanism that backs it up. Sure. Um, then the third way this works is a sort of more specific, like technical competition with European foreign ministries. Um, in foreign services, which are, again, believed to be like the European uh, businessmen, like better trained, better organized, and better at going out into the world and locking down the foreign markets, um, and better at protecting the national interest, which emerges from this sort of economic competition. Um, so that itself becomes a spur for creating a professional highly trained and highly articulate, good at articulating policy ideas, foreign service. Um, and you see this over and over again in diplomatic documents. Whenever a reform is proposed, it's always justified on the basis that, you know, the French do it this way, or the British do it this way, or the Germans do it this way. So we should be doing it this way. Or we're doing this thing which is better than the French or the Germans or the British, so we need to keep doing that and we need to institutionalize it. Um, so there's, a, there's an element of direct technical competition between the services too. You're talking about like the development of a market reform policy, which didn't exist before. And just yeah. sort of these people saying we need to be singular minded if we're going to compete with yes. countries. Yes, the singular mindedness is very, very important because that, that idea, everything needs to be kind of centralized and controlled. Um, if you're going to, if you're going to, you know, compete effectively on the international stage, then, you know, everyone needs to be pulling together. And initially that involves cooperation between, in cooperation within 
the Foreign Service itself, you need to get rid of the inefficient people, get rid of the political, the, the patronage networks, uh, the spoil system, the jobbers, and things like that. Then you need to cooperate more effectively with business. So now it's business and, foreign, and the Foreign Service which are going together. And then after that, you need to also you need to also start working more effectively with the government because you need to start coordinating the actions of people like Congress. Um, they, you know, they need to fall into line too. And pretty soon you get, you, you begin to construct in your head this model of society in which everything within the state goes to a point. And that, that single point is the contact with the outside world. So ev all of the weight of the state needs to be behind you. Um, so you get this really kind of centralized and, and very hierarchical and paternalistic idea of what state organization needs to be needs to be needs to look like. Yeah, and I think that's the perfect way to set the stage for one of the things I know we wanted to talk about, which is the Cold War, because everything you just said was just screaming George Kennan's long telegram. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right? And how we, like, you know, we need to take all these apparatuses of government and, you know, and really have this very singular focus yes. about yes. What's, go what's going on. It's sort of like geoeconomics, really, in its early form, how just the government has to push the economy towards geopolitical ends in some way. Exactly. I'm that's sure. what dollar diplomacy is. Sure. It's it's that. That's That's... Um, and I think dollar diplomacy is sort of the first expression of, of American realist foreign policy, really. I'm thinking of those drawings you did as kids where you put a dot in the middle of the paper and then everything has to be angled towards that dot and it's yeah. just a one perspective. Um, totally unnecessary in this podcast, but I was just thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good metaphor. I think that's... So, how, so I think you, what you're describing is an incredibly tuned, integrated government business apparatus building towards foreign policy. That's what they want to make. Right. Yes. So how do we look so isolated? We, the United States, and going to World War II, Cold War. How do we look so isolationist going towards the Cold War? Is it because of the Great Depression? Is that turning us inwards? Um, because um, I see the idea of when people talk about the eventual collision between Russia and the US is that, yes, they were ideologically focused, but these people just weren't really that good at foreign policy. Both are pretty inward looking yeah. for the past couple decades. I, I like that. They're kind of novices. Yeah. And I think that's why you take unsocial beasts and put them together, they're going to kill each other, not going to hash it out. Yeah, no, that, that sounds right. And I mean, you know, you have to remember that these people, that is the realists, the proto-realists are certainly, I mean, even in, even during the progressive era, when a lot of this stuff is really kind of in vogue, there, you know, paternalism, distrust of democracy, national efficiency, bureaucratic management, scientific management, the sort of scienceization and rationalization of everything. That, that was 1900 to 1910 or maybe 1920. This is when that enthusiasm for that kind of stuff peaks in the United States. And nevertheless, these people, um, the people who favor this kind of management of society, uh, totalizing management, they're always in the minority in the United States. Um, like, you know, the election of 1912, uh, the political party which most clearly espouses that kind of idea of the state is Roosevelt's progressive Bull Moose Party. Um, and it gets pretty thoroughly, I mean, it comes in second, but it's pretty thoroughly trounced by the Wilsonian kind of more Jeffersonian or liberal or individualist sort of progressivism, um, which is... I mean, which I, I mean, the, the proto-realists really hate 
the Democratic Party. They think the Democratic Party is really completely, just totally wrong-headed. It's yeah. mm-hmm. completely the opposite of the way things ought to be done in the country. They're not paternalist enough. Right. Um, but they always lose. They lose the arguments. But it's so complicated to talk about this in today's terms because we're when you hear realist foreign policy, you think it's something very conservative. But really, this is very state-run. This is almost oh, like yes. socializing how the country should run. Sure, sure. And liberalism in this context is actually very conservative, very hands-off, mm-hmm. and it's classical. Yes. Yeah. It's the Bismarck paradigm, kind of. It's you know the state going out and doing things like um, solving social discord by reconciling capital and labor. Uh, that's really important, you know, like having things like social security, quasi-social security systems, fair um, labor rights, uh, fair working hours, all sorts of things that labor wants. Those things are important for the proto-realist type people. Uh, for the in, uh, in so far as they serve the greater yes. goal. Yeah, right. in so far as they serve the greater goal. Exactly. It's all instrumental. They want. Yeah. They don't want any social conflict at home. So you know, there has to be some kind of give and take. Uh, between capital and labor. You can't just give everything to the capitalists, um, nor can you give everything to the laborists either. But they they need to stop fighting because they need to be turning their attention outside, sort of focusing on that point. And so can you talk about how these ideas, again, from the right, the turn near to the turn of the century, how these then kind of gel and form kind of when the Cold War is beginning, how, the, how if there's a continuity between that kind of stuff and then Kissinger, who we were talking yeah. about off air. Yeah. Um, so what I says, uh, at this point, I'm beginning to speculate a little bit beyond the research I have done. Okay. But I, I suspect I may be onto something in, in terms of the route I'm speculating. Um, I think what begins to happen is an institutional culture begins to build up within the State Department, which internalizes some of the thinking of these proto-realists. Another term for them, by the way, is it's a term that I think there's a historian called Robert Osgood, and Samuel Huntington also used the term in the 50s, Neo-Hamiltonian, oh. um, which is a, a kind of a substitute for proto-realist. I think that'd be very confusing to modern audiences. Yes, <laughs> but let's, 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 so let's stick with proto-realist. Okay. Um, now, I think... I'm sorry, I've lost my friend of thought for just a second. Um, I think the what begins to happen is a um, an institutionalization of some of these thought structures that begin to develop in the neo-realist world, in the neo-realist camp. Um, because a lot of these people, even though they're losing the bigger political battle, or they, they believe themselves to be at least, um, they're still retaining a lot of sway within the State Department. And a lot of them are the people who are building the structures, and also the internal patronage networks, the networks of friendship, uh, the kind of clubbiness which characterizes the State Department of the 20s and 30s. Um, and the State Department of the 20s and 30s includes, it's the environment in which are born um, or, emer- or, or emerge as in their mature forms people like George Kennan, for example. Um, George Kennan's mindset is born of some of the institutions created by this earlier group of State Department reformers. Um, This is an argument which is sort of at least implicitly present in Robert Schultzinger's famous uh, book on the, he calls it the making of the American diplomatic minds. The making of the diplomatic mind is the name of the book. Um, And it's from, so it, 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 even though the realists don't 
gain a whole lot of power in society at large. Um, the ideas they're espousing get locked in in the State Department, and they also influence the kinds of people who are recruited into the State Department. Uh, the screening processes they set up, which are a natural part of the, the growth of professionalization. You need to test people, you need to assess them in order to make sure that they're, um, they're smart enough to do what Competent, they want to do. Yeah. Um, that means that they, those ideas have some control over who's coming into the department. It favors the recruitment of people like Henry Kissinger, who is not a product of this world at all, but whose views kind of align with it and who is brought into it after the Second World War. Um, That's fascinating. So that, I think, is where the continuity lies. The continuity lies in the extent to which the ideas get institutionalized within the State Department, and the institutionalization of the ideas begins to drive the recruitment and the training processes for the younger diplomats, who, after 1945, really begin to take over the operation of the department and actually articulate American foreign policy in a big way. The, the people who become the heavy hitters. So George Kennan and Henry Kissinger are the two most obvious examples. Of right. And then kind of the next thing that I naturally started thinking about is, you know, somebody who we mentioned last time you were on, which is um, Elliot Abrams. And then I guess there's another school that then starts to emerge in the 60s and the 70s mm -hmm. that, you know, there's the, the, the Selma to Moscow book and Sarah Schneider. Yes, that's right. And... If, if I understand correctly, then now we have this progression where now these older proto-realist ideas get institutionalized. You have the Kissinger, the, the George Kennan, early Cold War generation. But then almost as a reaction to them, there's this new school that, right, that has a slightly different view, right? Is it fair to say that uh, that somebody like Elliot Abrams and this whole human human rights push and democracy push is a, is a counterflow to that idea? Yeah, I suspect that that's right. This again is now launching well into the realm of speculation beyond what I've, what I've really closely studied, but I believe that may be the case. Um, and that was, you're right to bring up the Snyder book because um, I mentioned last time that one of the most interesting aspects for me of the Snyder book is the final chapter of the book, the final full chapter, um, in which Snyder discusses the kind of institutionalization of the human rights promotion mindset within the State Department yeah. during the late 60s and into the 70s, really. Um, and it's that process of institutionalization that strikes me as representing a big break with the older structures which emerged from the proto-realist right. um, proto camp at the beginning of the 20th century. Now, there may be a lot more institutional variation uh, within that long sweep from about 1910 to 19, call it 1970, 75. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing, there's no, I, I can't see any concern about, you know, really promoting the welfare of other states per se. Um, the importance of human rights work, which is not just about the national interest, um, or not always about the national interest, um, or the kind of human rights work, rather, that is not just about the national interest, that is about something more profound. Because otherwise that. it could be part of the realist grants, right? It's, it's actually not something different. It's just yeah. one more element of the... And it can be, and it is initially at first. Yeah. I actually, we just read Michael, um, Morgan. Michael Morgan's book on the Helsinki Final Act, which is a fantastic book. And what Morgan points out is that um, 
the kind of rhetoric about human rights which emerges from the Helsinki Final Act, uh, very famously emerges from the Helsinki Final Act, is entirely instrumental on the American side. Um, but I think what Steider is describing is the the change from instrumental human the rights... leftovers on the outside of that that inevitably arose too. Right? Yeah, that's right, exactly. So people begin to start thinking, as the language seeps into the department, even though it's being used instrumentally, people within the department start to think about the things that they're doing in terms of the language they're using. This is one of those really fascinating processes, one of those really fascinating yeah, things fascinating, about... Yeah. about um, I think it's John Lewis Gaddis who says, who brings up in his book about containment, um, that you know, if you use language for long enough, if you if you use something instrumentally for a long for a long time, if you use an idea instrumentally for a long enough time, that idea will begin to be real in your head, and you'll start to actually think about the things. You'll start to believe your own bullshit. Yeah, is yeah. a really crude way of yeah. putting it. Yeah. I think that's such a great point. I mean, so I think a lot of these ideas, like. You know, the difference between realism and liberal internationalism sometimes is public relations. I mean, how we talked about uh, the U.S. and the Philippines and how that could be viewed as this sort of empire-building move, but yep. also be viewed as this, we're protecting this civilization so we can start serving American ideals. Yep. So in, in the Cold War aspect, you know, we talk about Elliot Abrams sort of uh, acting as a new force, but at the same time, we also have Bretton Woods. We have the early European Economic Community. We have the UN. Mm -hmm. Sort of these ideas that would represent a liberal international order that have been sort of pushing this cohesion for so long, yet the Cold War is viewed as this realist standoff. Yep. And I think Michael Morgan's book is the logical conclusion of that. Of mm -hmm. These things were always sort of existed, and this is the realization that the realist standoff is not going to last forever because we both just have missiles pointed at each other, <laughs> and there's not that's only going to end one way. We have yep. to, you know, open a new book, I guess. Really. Yeah, that's true. Actually, that's a very interesting point. Is that the Cold War is not just an ideological standoff; it's also a standoff in a realist way too. It's mm -hmm. both at the same time. The realist orders and the international and, and the international liberal. The liberal internationalist or um, enlightenment internationalist orders embodied in the Soviet Union and the United States, um, both of them are counterpoised. Both of them are kind of mutually exclusive. Um, and that's what the Cold War is. It's both of those things. Yeah, well, fascinating. Um, I think I hit a lot of the points. I was hoping to hit on realism to get yeah. any more. Uh... Yeah, let me think. Um, this is a never-ending conversation. Sure. Yeah. Um, might be taking us in the direction we don't necessarily want to go. But then the, the thing that I kind of started thinking about is you take an institution like the EU mm -hmm. and it's, I mean, you know, when it was, when it was founded, I don't know, you know, how much you know about the EU or think about the EU, but when it was founded, it was, you know, it's this very optimistic vision and it's Coal this, union. this whole new supernational, supernational yeah. entity, which is like this totally new and revolutionary thing in yeah, foreign yeah. policy history foreign policy history and but on the other hand it could never really come into its own as long as there was a cold war going on because again it would have been it's oh it oh, no it's its function is actually instrumental and it's a way about mm -hmm. securing the economic powers of these uh, nato countries basically yeah um but then after the Soviet Union uh, uh, collapses, then it's like, oh, now we have to believe in all the stuff that uh, we, 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 I mean, I would, I would argue that they did sincerely believe their, right. their purpose longer before, but now then you have a, this flourishing 
of, of, of something. And so it's just, it's related to these other ideas and this, this point about how once you start using this language, then you'll, you'll start to believe it on its own merits at some point. Yeah. Just, or, or even if not you, then other people will. And so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The EU's language definitely paint itself as a sort of constructionist or liberal internationalist. But, you know, there's quite a bit of hard power in the fact that we can tank your economy at any moment if you don't play ball with us. Sure, like, that sure, is not sure. necessarily soft power. Surrey, no. Surrey has talked about that quite a bit, how if we put hard power, realism in one bucket, soft power, liberal nationalism in another bucket, that's not really how anything works. Like, behind each is military force and economic force. Yeah. So it's just kind of like power should just be how we discuss these ideas and the other it could be public relations there could be a fundamental difference between guns and diplomacy sometimes there isn't yeah i'm just thinking as we're talking about this that you know there's something almost hegelian about the way this <laughs> conversation has worked out um we started with this basically two camps of people at the beginning of the 20th century who hate each other uh the proto-realists on the one hand who think that wilson is just Utter, utterly absurd, mm -hmm. yeah. um, completely wrong-headed about everything. He's going to destroy the United States. Um, and there are in interesting um, implications from some people who are involved in this that uh, Wilson doesn't really represent the United States because uh, in the election of 1912, he did not win 50% of the vote because mm -hmm. of the strange split. So he's, his election is a minority, um, a minority administration. It uh, doesn't really represent all of America. Um, then on the other side, you get the, the Wilsonian types, for whom, um, at least in the kind of language they use, um, the traditional sort of proto-realist approach uh, of employing strength and military force for pure sort of realpolitik means is an ugly thing of the past that has produced the First World War and that needs to now be transcended in order to protect American institutions. The, the liberal internationals right. cannot stand the fact that the realists want to remake American re in, domestic institutions. Which is, a, which is an idea I find persuasive, personally. Yes. There can be all kinds yes. of opinions about that. So you move from a situation in which the, these two quite hostile camps to a situation in 1945 at which they're actually beginning to merge and mingle yeah. in part because of circumstances, in part because of the, the perceived threat of the Soviet Union or the perceived necessity to remake the world because the United States sort of has a military presence everywhere all of a right. sudden and it needs to figure out what to do with it. But you've still gone from a scenario of two camps to a scenario of overlap between yeah. the two camps and intermixing of the two camps, yeah. and maybe reconciliation and synthesis between the two camps. And that's where I think that the whole idea, again, coming back to the, the foreign policy consensus comes from, is that it's neither liberal internationalist nor realist, but there's still some sort of consensus. Interesting. I think this is a great ending to a part one of this podcast. I think we can definitely get into more of Kissinger's development and sort of the development of uh, Cold War diplomacy. But uh, for the people who could follow this, I hope they were really entertained. I enjoyed this quite a bit. <laughs> Any last words we want to end on? John, Matt? I just want to thank John for coming on again. Always a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for having me on again. It was great to talk to you. Now, hopefully it will become a staple of the show. Well, thank you for listening. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.